Welcome, guys and gals, to the Man Talks podcast. I'm Connor Beaton, the host and founder of Man Talks. This podcast brings together the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to help teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. Man Talks exists to help develop self-aware, high-performing, and impactful men in the world, men you want to be around, and the man you want to be. Just before we dive into today's episode, I want to remind all the guys to head over to facebook.com forward slash Man Talks community, or just search for Man Talks community and join the conversation. We have some incredible men from all over the world who dive into things like finance, fitness, fatherhood, career, entrepreneurship relationships, you name it, we talk about it and jam on it in there. There's some great resources, some great challenges happening, and some great people to connect with. So head on over. Community is free, and it's a a great way to meet some people who are like-minded. Another reminder, head on over to mantalks.com. I don't know if you've noticed, but we have a brand new website. Uh, Looks pretty slick. Would love to actually hear about what you think about the website, how the functionality is, feel free to hit me up at info at mantox.com with your feedback. Uh, and don't forget to head on over to mantox.com forward slash mastermind for all the guys out there. Check out the mastermind. We've got some great guys here in Vancouver, in Calgary, and in Toronto that have come together to support each other, like-minded men that are holding each other accountable to the goals and results that they are trying to achieve in their life and in their relationship and in their business. So Check it out. Uh, And joining me today, I have somebody that uh, I've been wanting to interview for a while, Mr. Dov Barron. Uh, Dov is actually recognized as one of the top 100 leadership speakers in the world to hire. And he's also a corporate cultural strategist. And he's the founder of Full Monty Leadership, which I absolutely love. How do you not like that? Um, I don't know if you remember the movie. I think it was from like the 90s, Full Monty. Um, We're not going to be talking about naked leadership today, but uh, we definitely are going to dive into leadership. And he's also a best-selling author. His latest book uh, is called Fiercely Loyal, How High-Performing Companies Develop and Retain Top Talent. Today, we are going to dive deep into leadership. We're going to dive deep into corporate culture. We're going to talk about conflict management. Uh, and we're going, to, we're going to talk quite a bit about, about career professional development and you know whether you run your own company, whether you are a part of a team, whether you lead a team, this episode is going to be extraordinarily specific and applicable for you to help you understand how to get some tools in terms of conflict management, conflict resolution. Uh, communication skills across your team, and just general leadership principles that can help support you, whether you are trying to move up the ranks or whether you are at the top of the ranks running your own company. So without any further delay, I would like to bring on Mr. Dov Barron. Well, thanks for inviting me. I'm, uh, I'm very excited to be here. I'm really looking forward to this. Thank you. And we actually got connected through uh, through a mutual friend, Cameron, and he put us in touch a while ago. And we met up on Skype and chatted for a little while. And, and after hearing some of your story and some of the work you do, I knew instantly that you'd be able to add some huge value, especially around leadership and some of these different areas. So I'm really excited to, to connect with you today. Thanks, mate. I'm really excited to be here. So as we usually do, we love to start the interview off with a with a question that usually brings some context, not only to who you are and what you do, but why you do it. So mm-hmm. I'm going to dive in with that first and foremost. So tell us, tell us, the, the listeners and myself, a story or and a defining moment about your life that has made you who you are today. You know, it's a great question to start with. And in my reality, in my truth, it's a very limiting question because, and I'll tell you why, because 
I don't believe for a moment that we are defined by a moment. What I mean by that is that events happen to us and we think that that's where we change, but it's actually not. It's usually when things become normal again where we change. So there are many profound stories in my life and in all of the lives of each of your listeners. But I will give you, I will give you one that tends to be more of my signature. And that is in June 1990, I was a very successful speaker. I got to travel across the world. I'd spoken in every major city of Australia. I'd moved to Canada. I was speaking all over Canada and Northern US, having a very busy schedule, uh, having more success than I'd ever previously experienced. I had a nice house and a nice car and all the things that I thought was going to make it just wonderful for me. And in June 1990, I came back from a tour and the person who was managing my schedules said, you know, you're exhausted, you've got to take some time off. And she put me four days away. And a buddy of mine and I went to, on a drive to Whistler. Now, I know you know where that is, Connor, but for those of you who don't, that's where the w Winter Olympics were held in 2010. Beautiful place, but this, is, of course, now is just June. So it's not winter, it's a beautiful village. And we spent, it was a gorgeous day, it'd been a really wet spring, but there was a beautiful sunny day. And we spent the, the morning laid by the lake and just taking in the sun and getting some really good R&R. &R. And after lunch, I, I said to my buddy, let's go for a hike. And we went to a place called Brandywine Falls, which is this spectacular, majestic waterfalls where the glacial water rushes down the river at super high speed and then plummets off a cliff at 200 feet. And it just is gorgeous. So we hike down to the bottom and get to the place where you can see the fall from the ground level. And you can actually feel the spray coming at you at 70 miles an hour, a very long distance away because it's such high pressure. And I challenged my buddy that we should climb over the rocks because I was a bit of an adrenaline junkie, to say the least, uh, to scramble across the rocks, these woody, uh, these wet rocks, get behind the waterfall. And, you know, there's this little gap. And if you put your arm up, it would literally knock your arm off. But we did. We got behind there. And it was amazing. When we came out on the other side, I felt like I had a big S tattooed on my chest. And I felt like I could do anything. And being an adrenaline junkie, and what I said to my buddy was, let's not hike, but rather let's free climb. Now, if you know anything about those kinds of sports, you probably, if you've not done it, you probably think that mountain climbing is a bit crazy, but it's not. You have safety lines and you have all kinds of cool things that will keep you safe. And if you know what you're doing, you're going to be okay. And where climbing gets a little crazy is when you free climb, because then you, all you've got is the right clothing, the right shoes and chalk, but you're going to climb. Well, if you want to take that to the whole nother level of crazy, then you're trying to free climb in wet clothing with the wrong shoes on and no chalk. That's what we began to do. At about 120 feet, which is, uh, for those of you who are not sure what, how to calculate that, if you've ever been in a high-rise building to the 12th floor and you stood on the balcony and there was no railing and you looked over the edge, that would be 120 feet. And at about 120 feet, I reached for a rock. That rock dislodged and bam, hit me in the face and sent me hurtling down at maximum velocity onto the boulders below. Not rocks, not gravel, not grass, boulders. And I got smashed to absolute pieces. When I came around, I thought my head was underwater because I had so much fluid and I couldn't work out what all this fluid was. And then I tasted that taste of rusty iron and realized it was blood. 
I was, uh, my jaw, my lower jaw was smashed into three separate pieces, my upper jaw into two pieces, both cheekbones completely disintegrated, nose completely collapsed, eye sockets collapsed. There was, it was just a big, horrible mess. Uh, one of my favorite teachers, Khalil Gibran, said, your pain is the cracking of the shell of your understanding. Well, on that day, my understanding was shattered. And it changed everything. I went from believing I was successful to really questioning what it really meant to be successful. And, and you should know that I was 32 years old at that time, and I had begun my self-development journey at 19. So I was not a newbie to this. And I, if you'd have asked me a minute before if I knew what my purpose was, the answer would have been absolutely yes. But it was that moment that really plummeted me into the darkest possible place. And as Joseph Campbell says, if you really want to find the treasure, you must go to the darkest cave. And it took me to the darkest cave of my own being, where I had to really look at what is the true meaning of my life and what is the true meaning of what it is that I teach. And that changed everything. Very powerful, man. Very powerful. And not not just because of the, you know, the the accident and the and the incredible storytelling, but just the shift that it, that it must have caused within you. And I think the analogy from Joseph Campbell really ties it back, back together. So after that, how did things shift for you? How did your, how did your work shift for you? And what did you start to focus on after you, after you recovered? Really appreciate you asking that because most people miss that part. Hmm. And that's what I was saying. You know, our, mo- our life isn't defined in moments. So that moment was in fact a pivotal moment. And if you've, had a car accident, if you had a heart attack, if you lost somebody who loved you or you loved or you had a divorce or you had a horrible diagnosis, these are the moments that are pivotal. But the night where your life changes, your life doesn't change in a pivotal moment. You are presented with the option for it to change, but it doesn't actually change. You swear that it will change. You lay in the hospital bed saying, I'm not going to work 80 hours a week anymore. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to spend time with my kids. You know, I said, I'm, you know, I had to re-examine my life. But, you know, I spent the first nine months bullshitting myself and everybody else. When people say, how are you doing? I'm great. I'm coming back. I'm coming back. Hey, I got news for you. There is no back. Not how life works. So what happened was at about nine months in from my recovery, I had already had multiple uh, reconstructive surgeries. And I, I looked okay if you didn't know what I looked like before. I found myself on the floor in the fetal position, weeping, and realized I couldn't go back. There was a very, very seductive pull to stay exactly where I was, which would be in the victim mode, or to move forward. But to move forward, I would have to look deep within. That was the choice point. So there's the pivotal moment, and then there's the choice moment. And that choice moment is where everything could be normal. Everything is like, it's fine. You know, I could just do it as, it, as I was doing it. Or you make a you make a massive decision that's got to be different, and it was that place where I actually returned to say, "What is my purpose? What is the purpose of my life? What is the meaning of it? What am I? Act, what's actually driving everything I do? What's driving the relationships that I'm in? What's driving me to make a difference? What's driving me to speak? What is driving me to work one on one with the clients that I work with?" And to this day, that purpose is what drives absolutely everything. And it drives the work that I do because part of my purpose is 
helping others to discover their purpose, live from their purpose, so they can have greater levels of success, but also greater levels of significance, and more importantly, fulfillment, so they can create a legacy. That's fantastic, man. And and so, did your work change? Like, because you've been doing leadership development mm-hmm. and and leadership training, and you speak on leadership. And you know, I, I love your branding because you know the full Monty leadership. That, <laughs> that <laughs> I mean, for if I, I remember watching the full Monty yeah. uh, years and years ago. I think I was in high school. And so you do this, you know, speaking, yeah. consulting. You have a podcast on leadership, and you're really one of the top authorities on leadership. I think you got ranked you know, number one by Inc for your podcast. And mm-hmm. so you have some incredible, incredible accolades. And it, and it sounds like this, this moment when you were 32 really started to shift things. So did you take things a little bit more seriously with, you know, did spirituality come into your life at that point? Cause I always find that the ripple effects after these, you know, near death experiences and for people that haven't been in near death experiences, but they've had these sort of quote unquote rock bottom moments. And yours is a really, when I think about it, literally rock, a literal, a literal rock bottom moment. Um, And I don't mean to make light of it, but some people do go through that rock bottom in their life. And when they come out and, and when they start to bounce back from that, you know, the ripple effects are, are pretty powerful. And so, Absolutely. You know, how did the work, what, what came out of that for you personally in, in the work that you do? Well, um, again, it's a great question because um, did it take me on a spiritual path? The truth of the matter is I began my spiritual path at seven years old. So it didn't take me onto a spiritual path. I was already on that path. I'd been dedicated to that path my entire life. So I'd already done 25 years of spiritual work. Um, I traveled around the world prior to this fall to study with different spiritual masters. I studied uh, Vedanta, which is Hindu philosophy, Buddhism, the Tao, Gnostic Christianity, and Kabbalah, among other religions, religious philosophies. I'd spent time in monasteries and lived with the monks and done all those kinds of things. So spirituality was something not new to me, and it didn't bring me back to it. What it did was took me deeper into it, and there's a distinction there. One of the things that I find frustrating in the Western world is people who quote unquote think they're spiritual. Spirituality is not a thinking process. What it did was it, it, it pushed me deeper into that dark cave. So if you really want to embrace your spiritual path you know, as you're listening to this and, you know, you might think I'm full of shit and that's completely okay, by the way. <laughs> but if you really want to embrace your spiritual path, there's one place you've got to look that you've not looked. As Campbell said, it's that dark cave. Well, what is that dark cave? It's your pain. And I'm not just talking about your physical pain. You've got to look at your history. You've got to look at what it is that's underneath there. That's the calling. You see, here's the thing. Your business, if you're in business right now, as you're listening to this, I want you to get something that you probably never considered. Your business is your spiritual path. It is the path to your soul. You probably don't look at it that way. You don't understand it that way. And if you do, it's a it's a vague ideology. But what I'm talking about is it's actually the place to heal your soul. It's the place to take you to the deepest spiritual understanding of what it is. That's the work that I do is, is I'm stripping away. You know, most of us go out in the world. And I one of the things that I teach is the three-circle principle. And, and the outer circle is that we come into the world and we feel like we're not enough. And as a result of feeling like we're not enough, what do we do? We go, okay, well, I got to accumulate more to be, to be enough. So I'm going to get more money. I'm going to get a better house. I'm going to get a, a Rolex. I'm going to 
get a new whatever it might be, get a new partner, buy a new set of tits, whatever it might be to make ourselves feel whole. And then we realize, oh, shit, didn't really work. I'm still feeling this this emptiness. I'm still feeling this hunger. How come I've got all this success, all these accolades, and I still feel empty inside? What is it? And then we enter the second circle where we go, I'm not enough. There's still something missing. There's something wrong with me. What is it? I know I got to work on myself and it's great. That's fantastic. Cause that's, that's that journey to self discover. And I've got to be a better speaker. I've got to be a better leader. I've got to be some, you know, so we're looking at adding things to ourselves to become a better human being. And that's wonderful. But I remember I was in the seminar business. I was a seminar company for, for 20 plus years. And I was, one of the reasons I got out was because I, was going insane watching people in the recycling world. They would recycle from one workshop to the next to the next, looking for the magic bullet that would make them whole. And so they would do that cycle. So they'd either make all the money and then realize it didn't work and then go into the personal development and then realize that wasn't working. So they'd go to another personal development and one after the other recycle the workshops and even go back to the same workshop. People returned to my workshops five times. It was phenomenal material. But there was, it still wasn't getting them to what they needed to get to. Because the third circle, the question changes from why am I not enough and how can I get what I need so in the third circle is what do I need to let go of? What do I need to release in order to discover what I am? So for my work, the analogy I like to give is this. Michelangelo is said to have been interviewed and asked, how did you create this beautiful structure called David. And Michelangelo said, David was always in there. My job was to chip everything else away. That's the work that I do now. Mm. In my leadership work, I'm taking away everything that's not true. That's why it's full Monty. It's stripping it away, taking away everything that's not the truth of who that person is. And when you get down to that, that's where the diamond is. And a diamond is multifaceted. But the world we live in tells us, no, you've got to be one thing. You're not one thing. You're dichotomatic. You're dichotomatic. You've got multiple facets. You've got all these different parts of yourself. Bringing that to the, to the fore can only be done as you peel away everything you've added on that's not the truth of who you are. Yeah, I, I really like that. And I, I really love you know, the insight about your business being your quote unquote spiritual journey. I'm a firm believer that entrepreneurs, you know, people that have businesses, their business is only going to grow to the capacity or, or the, or the level which they're willing to grow. And like you said, that growth is really dependent on our ability to strip the parts away that aren't us and to be able to dive into the cave, you know, to start to look at the shadow parts of ourselves. So I love that you bring that, you know, the, the almost like psychology, you know, like we're almost talking about Carl Jung and Freud mixed with Buddhism and Hinduism around leadership. And this is, this is fantastic because it's not just, it's not just sort of, um, uh, feedback advice or, or those other pieces. It's the much bigger picture with which I love. Yeah. Um, and, and that is my background. Like studying all those religious philosophies, but I also studied psychology. I was originally trained as a counselor. While I was doing all those things, and then in '84 started studying quantum physics, and I wrote my dissertation on something called quantum meta, quant, personal emotional quantum metaphysical personal emotional resonance fields. I know it sounds complex, but it's really how all those things intersect. 
So how your psychology, your metaphysics, and quantum physics come together to create who we are and how we operate in the world. When you get to that, it sounds very complex, but the truth of it is, as I said, it's stripping away everything that's not real. I like that. I like that. It's almost like taking down the masks, yep. taking down the facades that we build up and, and sort of, you know, uh, I think there's a great leadership analogy around opening the kimono, right? Being yep. able to open up yep. a little bit more and, and, and strip away the parts that aren't really us. So I, I like that. So let's shift a little bit into leadership. Not that we weren't talking about it before, mm-hmm. but let's just address it uh, a little more. Uh, just right. a, a little bit more tangibly and directly, you know, you've done this, this work for a really long time. So what are some of the core tenets around your leadership trainings and how has that shifted over the years? Because I think that's really important because leadership for me is not just about, you know, running your own company. Um, it could be about management, but it is also leadership just in our personal lives with our friends and with our family. And so, you know, I really feel like the lessons that you share with us here today they're not just applicable to entrepreneurs. They're applicable to all the people that are listening that are, you know, fathers and mothers and brothers and, and friends. So, um, so just to kind of circle back, what are some of the core tenets of your leadership beliefs and how has that evolved over the years? Thank you for asking. Um, you're absolutely correct. Um, it has changed dramatically over the years. In my last book, what I, th- what I wrote about was that you can't lead today the way you led 10, 15, 20 years ago. And unfortunately, many leaders are leading like it's 20 years ago. So you, you just can't do that anymore. It, does, it simply doesn't work. So, you know, the old style of leadership was you need to know everything, that everybody has to come through you, and all decisions come through you. If you try and lead like that today, you are going to be in a lot of trouble very, very fast. Because people who are uh, even in their mid-40s, but certainly those who are 37 and below being millennials will not be will not be led that way. They will simply get up and walk away. My last book was called Fiercely Loyal because it's the number one challenge corporations are facing is keeping their people loyal. They just won't stick around. Because what I love about millennials is they're baby boomers with balls. <laughs> what I mean by that is baby boomers, you know, I, I'm a young baby boomer right at the very edge. But I remember people who were 10 years older than me saying, I'm never going to work for the men. And now guess what they are? They're the men. <laughs> well, the difference is that they they didn't feel like they had any options around it. So they didn't have the balls to step out and do their own thing in many cases. But the wonderful thing about millennials is they are stepping up. They do have the freedom of, of the web. They, they can create their own businesses on 20 bucks. And they're not going to put up with your command and control leadership anymore. So one of the central tenets of leadership now is that we have to, A, become very transparent about our business, B, become very transparent about ourselves. Vulnerability is power. You know, Brene Brown is talking about it, and she's got a lot of uh, lot of airtime around it. But, you know, it's, this is not new. I've been speaking about this for 20 years. It, but it doesn't mean it's not important. And I love what she's brought to this in that she's made it more mainstream. Your vulnerability is your power. If you really want to bond your people to you, you've got to let them in. Let them know about the struggles. Let them in. Let, and what that does is it crashes down the walls. A lot of the work that we do when we come into companies, I'm often asked, how do we break the silos, dog? How do we break the silo between the marketing department and the accounting department, you know, the different departments? How do we break down these silos? And the answer is always vulnerability. 
we were flown into a company, uh, a global company, to work with them in friends. The number one thing the CEO asked me to do, how do we get down the, the silos? At the end of a five-day training that we did with them there, these people were like brothers and sisters. This is, And can you imagine the, the success that that took? Can you imagine what happened to that company, the teams? I mean, like, as an example, one of the guys, his wife called the global CEO. She had known him, and she said, what did he do to my husband? <laughs> and he said, why? And she said, he's nice to people now, <laughs> which was so like completely unfamiliar. So the, the central tenant is, of course, vulnerability, but that means learning how to have compassion, learning how to have empathy, coming at your leadership from a place of collaboration, vital in your leadership. And understanding that nobody is drawn to you. This is vital. This is the deep psychology of it. That anybody who's come to you to work with you is there to reflect you. You don't live in the world. You live in the mirror. They're reflecting to you. Now, does that mean you should put up with shit? Absolutely not. But it does mean that before you instantaneously dismiss somebody, you take self-ownership of your choices in having that person there. And you go, well, I didn't hire them. The HR department did. You know what? You're the one dealing with them. They're in your reality for a reason. If you grasp that, you can change your organization dramatically. Your environment becomes your spiritual path. I like that a lot. And you, you touched on some really important pieces that I kind of want to circle back to. because I Absolutely. Think that, I think that they're, you know, like I used to work uh, at Apple and uh, during my time there, I obviously saw some incredible leaders, you know, men and women who had gotten their MBAs from places like Yale and Stanford and Harvard and mm -hmm. IE, which is in Madrid. It's one of the top, top MBA schools in, in, the, in, the, in the world. You know, I saw a lot of incredible leaders and I saw some leaders who on paper looked like they should have been so much more successful than they actually were. Yeah. And what I started to notice was the, was the difference specifically around empathy. And this is something you've got a great article on your site that I read last week, just in, in researching you. And uh, it's called, you know, authentic leadership, the power of empathy. Mm -hmm. And, and you talk about empathy in, in this article. And I think that it's great because I feel like there's a lot of leaders, a lot of managers that are out there, or even people that are in their in their relationship or in their family who are trying to be leaders. And one of the biggest challenges that they face is often being empathetic in moments that that call for it, but are very confronting for them personally. So how can how can people that are listening to this move through the confrontation that they feel when they, you know, intuitively or instinctually know that a situation calls for empathy and how do they actionably or, or tactically sort of engage empathy? That's actually a really, really good question. You know, I think the, the bottom line is, is to come back to what we were saying a few minutes ago is, is that if you're faced with a place where you want to go into a judgment, now let me just preframe that by saying something very simple. I know the new age stuff is out there about how you shouldn't judge people. But let me just be really clear to you. You are a judgmental person. <laughs> and, and and let me be, you know, you can, you can pretend you're as spiritual as you like, but you're judgmental. How do I know? Because everybody is. How do I know? Yeah. Because the psychology of it is it's built in. It helps us to survive. The challenge is not in being judgmental. The challenge is in letting the judgment control you. So here's the thing. By stepping into that, 
is going, okay, I am going to be judgmental, but I can be discerning, and there's a great deal of difference. I'm going to be politically incorrect for a moment. That's okay, right? Yep, absolutely. Because <laughs> I am not politically correct at all. <laughs> um, and but my actually my political correctness uh, incorrectness has a point here. So many years ago, one of my great teachers, Patasar Eje, who was the dean of Vedanta University in Bombay, and I sat on the grass of, of this university and we're having a chat. And he says to me, "On the spiritual path, you will need three things." And I'm like, "Okay." Now you should know at this point, I was 23 years old and I knew everything. <laughs> because you do when you're 23. <laughs> yep. I was 20, I knew everything. So I'm like, mm -hmm. now remember, I've already been on the path a long time. So, mm -hmm. so he says, the very first thing you need on the spiritual path is discernment. So I'm like, oh, okay. And I smile and nod, but I've not got a fucking clue what discernment is. I actually don't know that word, but I figure I'll look it up when I get home. Then he looks at me and he goes, the second thing you need on the spiritual path is more discernment. <laughs> oh, shit. Right? I hope to God it, the third thing isn't discernment. And guess what the third thing was? You got it. The third thing you need on the path is even more discernment. So finally, of course, now I have to admit, I don't know what he's talking about. So I said to him, I'm not sure I understand. Could you explain it to me? So he begins to explain it to me. And I, oh, okay, I got it. I got it. And I was thinking, you know, this guy's, you know, he's, he's Indian. It's probably an English thing he doesn't really understand. See, again, my arrogance was so huge. And I mean, I'm figuring it, that's why I do the accent because I'm thinking, you know, it's, it's to do with the fact that he does speak English as a first language. The fact that he's the dean of the university, you know, I kind of missed that point. Yeah. Uh, so I said, oh, 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 I, I get it. You mean judgment. And he looks at me cold-eyed and says, no, 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 I do not mean judgment. I mean discernment. Judgment is about them. Discernment is about you. Mm. When you judge somebody, it's about them. Discernment is about you. If you, as an example, if you want to smoke cigarettes, I have no problem with that. You want to shoot heroin, I have no problem with that. You want to do whatever you want to do in your life, I have zero judgment of it. But if you want to smoke a cigarette around me, that impacts me. I have a reaction to that, and I don't want to have that experience. So my discernment says, that doesn't work for me, but you're free to do it any way you like, except around me. That's the difference between judgment and discernment. I like that. That's a really incredible distinction. And I've, I mean, I think there's so few people, so few people think about that. And when you look at leaders in our work environments, oftentimes, you know, if they go by Myers-Briggs and stuff like that, they're the INTJs or mm -hmm. the ENTJs, you know, the, 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 the thinkers and the judgers, they're, they're very predominant. And, and oftentimes that's what's led them into a management or leadership position or, or, or a position of authority, Absolutely. right? They have that capacity. And so I love that, uh, that comment around distinguishing between judgment and discernment. I'm going to shift gears a little bit, and I, I would love to discuss uh, your book, Fiercely Loyal, mm -hmm. and 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 kind of talk about how that came about, because you've got some great lessons in there. So can you just unpack a little bit for our listeners what Fiercely Loyal is all about? Well, as I said, it came about because actually it was, uh, was something in my work that I was hearing constantly, which is, what is it with millennials? Why can't I get, why can't I get them to stay? Uh, and then there was a global study done by Gallup 
And it was the number one challenge facing CEOs in the world today was that they couldn't keep their top talent. So they find these great people. And, you know, if you've worked at a place like Apple, you know, this is true. And, you know, even though the loyalty tends to be uh, tended to be a bit better there than it, than it is in other places. But this is a, a massive challenge. And it's actually a massive challenge in the companies you wouldn't think of. So many of the companies that you think are the cool places to work, they can't keep people. You know what the average tenure is at Amazon? I don't know. One year. Really? Yeah. One year. They have a massive problem with loyalty. Now, here's the thing that everybody should know, This and it's part of the book. Forget the cost of hiring, because there's quite a cost in finding people. But let's say you found them. Let's put that cost to the side and even write it off. You're going to spend between 1.5 and two times the annual salary of that individual in training and developing them. What does that mean? It means if they leave you within 1.5 to two years, you've lost money. There's no ROI on that person. And that's just to get them up to speed. So this became a massive, massive problem. Fortunately, I do a lot of work in the sector of next generation leaders, uh, particularly in the family business environment, multi-generational, which can be in the hundreds of millions and even billion dollar companies, um, and look at how one generation interacts with the other generation. That background with the psychology and understanding this generational piece drew me to write this book and really allowed me to see where leadership was falling down and failing miserably and what we could do about it. And, you know, and part of the thing was I was on an interview last year and somebody asked me, so, well, why would baby boomers, because one of the things I was talking about was being this mediator between generations. And they said, well, why would baby boomers listen to you? I said, well, that's easy. You know, look at my gray hair. <laughs> that's that's how. But, so they trust me because I'm one of them. And they said, well, okay, well, why do millennials trust you? I said, because I'm one of them. And they go, well, you just said you're a baby boomer. And I said, no, you see, you don't understand. So there's certainly generational by chronology, by years. But the truth of the matter is, I was born a baby boomer, but always had a millennial mindset. Always. And it did, certainly didn't work very well for me working in the, in going out and trying to get a job. That's why I started my first business at 16. Um, <laughs> because I always had that millennial mindset. I wanted autonomy. I wanted what I did to make a difference. And this is one of the things leaders have got to understand today. Millennials don't want to do mindless work. They want to do meaningful work. It's at the top of their five most high-valued things about getting a job. It has to matter. It has to be meaningful work. They want to collaborate. They want to be included. They want autonomy. All things that were baby boomers' greatest desires when they entered the workforce but never thought they could have. And that's why I said I love millennials because they're baby boomers with balls. Yeah, I like that. It's, you know, what you were talking about before is there was a recent study that was done on millennials and it showed that millennials are going to be the first generation to leave this world or to die with less, uh, less than their parents, less than the generation before them. And it's, and it's not because they're not working as hard and it's not because they're, you know, not ambitious or hustling. It's actually because they're choosing to go and do more purposeful and meaningful work rather than doing things that they hate just to accumulate things. And so it's really interesting because now organizations and even ma and pa coffee shops and consulting firms are having to shift 
their culture in order to adapt to this mentality of, I don't want to do just a mindless job. I want to do something that's mindful and meaningful. And so it's, it's really interesting to, to hear you talk about that. So, so what is it that creates loyalty? Because, you know, in your book, you, you dive into a couple of challenges, you know, you talk about, uh, you talk about reciprocity as well. Um, and so I would love to hear some perspective on what are some of the, some of the core and the foundational pieces that can build loyalty, whether it's in, uh, whether, whether it's in the workplace or, yeah. or in relationship, because I feel like the, the core foundational pieces are, are very similar across the board. Of course they are. You're absolutely right, Connor. Absolutely. So the, the first thing is, you know, let's just give a simple example in your mind right now, as you're listening, I want you to do something. I want you to picture on the right of you just standing slightly in front of you to the right, is someone you've known for, let's say, somewhere between three and five years. And I want you to picture that person as somebody that you know, like, and trust. This is somebody who you, who you feel is a fiercely loyal friend. Now, on the left of you, I want you to picture someone else who is also you've known for three to five years. So they've known them about the same time. Only this person is a good acquaintance. What is the difference between these two people? You've known them for the same amount of time, so you can't say, well, it's time. So what's the difference between these two people? And the answer is, what do you get, Connor? Oh, I was going to go with trust. Trust. Okay, that's a good, good answer. But then I would have to say, but why do you trust one more than the other? You've known them the same amount of time. And the answer is very simple. The one that is a true friend you have been vulnerable with, and they have been vulnerable with you. In other words, that bond between the two of you has come out of vulnerability. And the vulnerability is what? They know your shit and you know theirs, and there's no desire to use it as a weapon. Hmm. That's the number one bonding thing. When we know what you know, we, we know below the surface when we have gone full Monty and we revealed ourselves to each other. That's the true bond. That's why you can meet somebody in a bar or in a coffee shop and you know, you've never met them before, and you sit down with them and within a half an hour you feel like they're your best friend because there was that openness, that transparency, that vulnerability. And you've got other people in your life been there ten years, you're like, Jesus, you know, I really don't know this person. Because that's what creates the bond. First and foremost is vulnerability, openness, the willingness to reveal. Now that has to have, for it to work, has to have reciprocity. And that's a lot of, so as you know, I go in, I work with leaders individually, but I also work with leaders inside of companies. We work with the C-suite individuals and create this bond that creates a culture around these things that bond the people that, that work with them, their teammates. And it starts right there in that we start to flatten out that hierarchy and create that vulnerability. But in the old school of thinking, I'm the CEO, you can't know anything about me. Well, if I don't know anything about you, I'm going to walk away. And one of the articles that you probably saw on the site when, was when I talked about, about transparency and TMI, too much info. And for the, the truth of the matter is that for a baby boomer, transparency, any transparency can feel like TMI. But for millennials, it's not. So the the example I give uh, in the article that I wrote was take for instance Tim Cook who is clearly not a millennial he is the the uh, president of the, the CEO of Apple and he came out of the closet and said he was gay 
Now, this was a big deal to baby boomers. Oh, my God, this guy came out and said this, and he's running, you know, the number one brand in the world. Oh, my God. Millennials were like, oh, this is great. You know, we feel like we know him better. Now, and one of the things that baby boomers are saying to me, well, you know, don't you think it was a bit too much? No. He didn't tell you the gory details of his sex life. He doesn't need to do that. But if somebody came up to him and asked him a personal question, he'd probably tell them. But he reveals enough to show he's not hiding. And that is the number one thing you must do to keep your people loyal, is reveal yourself. Again, full Monty, that transparency, you've got to have it. And it will scare the crap out of you <laughs> if you've not done it before. You may think you're going to get it used against you because that's the world you came from. But if you want to keep millennials loyal, that is what you've got to do. And they will love you for it, and they will circle around you, and they will work harder for you. That's number one. Then, as you said, meaningful work. The work has got to be meaningful. If you're working for a company and it seems that it's about the profit and the profit only, Millennials will walk away. Great example. Ralph applies for a job. It looks like a great job. He meets the person online, meets the HR person over Skype. It seems fabulous. It's time to go into the office and meet with them. And he, he goes into the office. He's excited. This looks like a great opportunity for him to grow. There's good salary. It's, it's wonderful. Everything seems right. He shows up at the reception, tells uh, the receptionist who he is. Oh, yes, we're expecting you. The HR person is going to come out to you in a moment. And, they, and the receptionist says to Ralph, would you like some water? And he says, yes. Would you like cold or room temperature? He says, I'd like uh, like some cold. He's okay. The person leans down. The receptionist leans down, goes under the desk, opens the fridge, takes out a bottle of water, plastic bottle of water, hands it to Ralph, and Ralph goes and sits down. And then uh, the receptionist calls the HR person and says, Ralph's here. Okay, great. I'm going to be a few minutes finishing up. The receptionist goes back to work. The HR person comes out a few minutes later. Where's Ralph? Oh, I don't know. Maybe he went to the bathroom. They wait. No Ralph. Where did Ralph go? Ralph went home. Why would Ralph leave when this is a great job, a job he was excited about potentially getting? It had a great future. There was all kinds of potential for growth. Why did he leave? I don't know. Because you handed him a bottle of water in a plastic bottle, which for him said, you don't care about the planet. I don't want to work here. Hmm. And this is, this is what happens. See, when I entered the workforce, I was asked, what do you want to do? That was a 20 to 40 year career question. When you ask a millennial that question, it's a, it's a really ridiculous question because a career for a millennial, as you know, Connor, is about four years. That's 10 times less. A career, not a job, a career, four years. And they want to do meaningful work, so they're, will, they're, they're willing to jump ship in a flash. When I entered the workforce, you know, the people around my age went, well, you know, I say, how's the new job? Oh, it's pretty good. Well, what do you think? How's it going to go? I don't know. I'm going to give it three months, six months. I'm going to give it a year, see how it goes. Millennials will give it one day. If you don't come across to them in one day to show that this is meaningful work, that we actually care, not just about the company, not just about the profit, but about our people, about our culture, about our community, what that could be the industry that we're in, but also the community that we live in and even the planet. You are not going to keep millennials. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting because again, just drawing on from my my personal experience at Apple, mm-hmm. I can I can say that every everything that you just said hits hits home. You know, like just the, all of the content you just said, I, I saw it time and time again, and oftentimes there'd be a disconnect between the baby boomers and you know and and, and the millennials, and it was really interesting because the example you gave with Tim Cook was powerful. Like for for most millennials you know, my age and younger. And mm-hmm. they were kind of like, yeah, what's, what's the big deal? It's great. And he was the first CEO. He was the first CEO to be, to openly be, you know, be gay and, and say that. And so it was really, really interesting to see that. And it, it strengthened loyalty to him as the leader of the organization within, because people felt like, you know, he wasn't just this figurehead that they've never connected to, they've never talked to, but now they felt like they had something a little bit more tangible. And I specifically like the fact that you talked about none of the gory details got shared because there is such a thing as oversharing and over vulnerability, you know, so using trying to use vulnerability as a tool for connection rather than it just being authentically something that you share. Well, and I think that, that that distinction is very important. It's vital. And this is where baby boomers often mistake it, you see, because they think when I'm saying be vulnerable, they're talking about going up to somebody and emotionally vomiting on them. Nobody appreciates that. Nobody. <laughs> so you don't want to emotionally vomit on somebody, but there's a reciprocity in the sharing. So you 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 share incrementally and you and you deal with reciprocity. So if you if you reveal and nothing comes back, the, you, you're either dealing with somebody who has shut down, or you've delivered too much detail. So you have to chunk it down into small pieces and go, okay, you want to know about me? That's great. Here's a piece. Watch what you get back. This is this is part of the communication skills that we teach with uh, the elite teams that we work with. It's like how to communicate in a way that has you pay attention to the reciprocity. If you don't pay attention to that, you'll be emotionally vomiting on people. You've got to grasp this. Yeah, I, I like that. And I like the distinction and, and just kind of shedding a little bit more light on that. You also do some work in terms of you know masculine and feminine dynamics in the workplace. And this is something that I've been speaking on, on quite a bit. Last year, I, I spoke at a, a conference in New York in front of 2000 women about, you know, uh, equality in the workplace and, you know, the emerging feminine within the workplace and, and how that sort of shifting power dynamics in, in some ways. And it was interesting because there was a guy from, from Morgan Stanley there and he shared a really cool piece of, of research that his organization had done and he had led the research. And what he found was that Boards of directors, so companies that have an executive suite that is more balanced with men and women, has a much more stable stock and is much more profitable. I think it was more profitable by about 5 to 7% mm-hmm. than an organization that's run just by men. And the, the organizations that are run just by men, so the entire board of directors is predominantly men, the stock price is, is much more volatile. And, and the, the organization, on average, is earning less than the ones that have uh, have men and women. Now, the interesting part about that is that there there are some challenges that come along with that. Um, so, I would love for you to just sort of shed a little bit of light on the work that you do, and maybe some of the challenges that you see and that you work with organizations on. That's great, great, great stuff. And yeah, that Morgan Stanley 
research is pretty powerful stuff. Um, first of all, I, I, I like the Dalai Lama believe that the world will be changed by the Western woman. And I'm very much, as you know, Connor, cause we had a chat about this, uh, very much about bringing more feminine into the workforce. But I think the first piece of this is understanding what the feminine is. Uh, so I'm going to be blunt cause that's who I am. The feminine doesn't have tits. Mm. Um, the feminine is something that exists in all of us and that men need to embrace the things that we societally call feminine um, and so that women have room to embrace the parts of themselves that are yang or masculine. It, it's it, So understanding this, the example I would give you, and this might sort of upset a couple of people, but I'm willing to go there. I'm not saying I'm a fan of the present president of the United States. I'm not saying I'm against the president of the United States. So please don't take it that way. Nor am I saying anything detrimental on the other side. But I can tell you that when Hillary Clinton was running for president, I was very nervous. Not because I didn't like Hillary, but because I saw Hillary as a product of a generation. And what I mean by that is, in that generation that she comes from, for a woman to succeed, she had to have bigger balls than a man. And I think that that's a massive mistake. Let's say if Oprah would have ran and I lived in the United States, I would have voted for Oprah because Oprah understands that she is yin with yang power. She uses her power. She uses her influence, right? And it doesn't matter whether I believe in her politics or not. What I'm talking about is this yin-yang balance. Men who are successful today who are really going to lead the front have to be able to embrace empathy and compassion and things that we call feminine, but they're not feminine. So in, a, in another study that goes back about five or actually about seven years now, there was an assessment of women in leadership by these kinds of boards. And they were saying that they're not getting promoted to CEO because they didn't have as much vision as the men. Why? When that was examined, what came out was because they're collaborative, because it's not their vision. They understand that everybody's part of that. So what happens is we've got these very strong ideas of feminine and masculine, and it's, it's, it falls down all the time because we then say, well, if, you know, it's a woman. No, that's not necessarily feminine. I saw Hillary Clinton as, um, as Yang. I see certain men as purely yin we have to have the balance think about that symbol of the yin and yang symbol and that's why i use that term it's half black it's half white but within the black is the white and within the white is the black it's embracing that within us that brings us i mean clearly anybody who's ever seen me would never say i look yin i look very yanged as you know you and i have seen each other you know i look like i've been in a fight i look like i've got a build i look like you won't don't want to mess with me clearly i'm assertive and clearly i'm confident and all the things that we call masculine but i will tell you that watching the auditions of american idol i cry watching these people pour their heart out i can cry at a commercial i'm available to all of my feelings I've been on the spiritual path. I've done the things that are considered feminine or yin. And I have more shoes than my wife. I always say I'm gay from the ankles down. <laughs> from the ankles up, I'm straight. From the ankles down, I'm gay. I mean, it's understanding what I'm saying about us being multifaceted. So as a leader, you've got to embrace these multiple facets of yourself 
And you've got to be willing to embrace those within others, within those that you lead, because this world needs women in power. And that will only, and I'm sad to say, it's so sad to say, that's only going to be facilitated by men. We need to step into that. As, uh, oh, his name's going out of my head right now. One of the Copenhagen uh, leaders uh, in the quantum physics world said, the world of physics will not be changed uh, because of the next most radical idea. We will have to wait for the old God to die. <laughs> and it's like, so, you know, it, I really, this is why I'm so passionate about millennial leaders, because my generation leadership is going to die. And if millennial leaders follow in the footpaths of that command and control and yang leadership, we're going to be in the same mess and bigger in 20 years. Men and women together embracing their own yin and yang. There is yin parts of me that every male leader needs. There are yang parts of me that every female leader needs. And I can learn from each of you. We are both the teacher and the student. We are yin, we are yang. Embrace that because it's powerful. What you can gain from somebody who you think is different from you is far greater than anything you can lose. That's that's awesome. That's awesome, man. And I think that that's that's pretty much the the perfect space to uh, to start to wrap things up on because I feel like that message is something that can be really powerful. And and again, just to just to reinforce it, you know, it's something that I've seen time and time again through my experience with organizations and with business leaders, and you know, even even with the men that that work uh, that I work with who run their own organizations in and around North America, whether they're running a hedge fund or they're running a consulting business or, you know, they're running a, a construction business. The really great leaders are the ones that have found a way to balance that yin and yang, to balance that masculine and the feminine and can identify, you know, when they need to step into one or the other and not, and, and not be rigid and stuck in one mode. Because that that's what that's what gets them because they can't adapt and they're not malleable. So really, really great stuff. And um, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and sharing in terms of if people want to get in touch with you, if they want to learn more about you, listen to your podcast, read your blog, where can they find you? Thank you for asking. Appreciate it. Uh, you can find me. My main website is full Monty, like the movie, fullmontyleadership.com. There you'll find access to my blog. Uh, my YouTube channel is uh, Dove Baron Full Monty Leadership as well. Um, so Dove Baron Full Monty Leadership on YouTube, on iTunes. You can find my podcast as you as Connor uh, graciously shared. We are the number one podcast for Fortune 500, and Inc. Magazine made us the number one leadership podcast. You just search Dove Baron Leadership and Loyalty. You'll see the several different ones. It's the Leadership and Loyalty uh, show on there. Uh, it's a great show. Wonderful, wonderful guests and. Uh, you know, we might even have a guy you know sometime by the name of, uh, what's his name? Uh, it'll come to me. Maybe it's, uh, Bonner or Ethel. No, Connor. That's the guy. You might know him. Uh, he's going to be on there at some point in time soon. So, uh, yeah, if you want to find out more about me, you can go to those kinds of places and simply search me. Find me on Twitter at the Dove Baron, LinkedIn by my name. Facebook is Dove Baron Leadership. I'm all over the place. Just simply Google me. I write for Entrepreneur and a bunch of 12 other outlets. I'm honored and happy to serve you. And one of the things I'm going to do, Connor, if it's okay with you, I'm going to give my email address. People always ask me, aren't you crazy for doing this? Maybe, uh, but that's all right. I'm, I'm good with being crazy. I want to give you my email address because I want to tell you why. 
Connor takes the time to bring you exceptional guests. You know, his time is expensive. My time is expensive. He brings you these great guests so that you can gain from this. If you're just listening in the background, which I know people do with podcasts, and you don't do anything with it, it doesn't hit home for you. You're like, oh, that was really great. And then Monday comes, or then the next thing comes. I'm giving you my email address because I want to hear from you, and I want you to write to Connor as well and tell him what you got out of this and what you're going to do with it. This is vital. This is how you make the shifts you need to make. So take a look at that. My email address is dovdov at D-O-V-B-A-R-O-N.com. Dov at dovbaron.com. Write to me. Tell me what you got out of this and tell me what you're going to do with it. And I challenge you to do the same with Connor. And I also challenge you to go to iTunes, rate, review, and subscribe to the show because it's a great show with great guests. And Connor should be recognized for that. Amazing, brother. Thank you so much. I, I appreciate that. Unsolicited call to action. It's fantastic. Um, and my last and final question, something that I've been asking guests lately, which has been really, really cool. If you could recommend one person for me to interview on this podcast, who would it be and why? One person for you to interview on this podcast, who would it be and why? Um, I would have to say that you... Ooh, you're making me really choose. I know. I've had I put you. I put you. I put you right on. The, right Especially on. Especially for me, with so many guests on my show, I got more than three hundred, like three hundred and fifty shows. So, uh, so I would. I'm gonna have to say that your people are going to really resonate with either Stephen Kotler or Tony G. Tony Grebmeyer. Uh, Stephen Kotler is the is the co-founder of the Flow Genome Project. Amazing guy, amazing guest, fabulous knowledge. Tony Grebmeyer is the uh, one of the co-owners of something called Ship Offers. Seems totally outside of this realm, but he's not. He's an incredible human being who went into recovery from alcohol and drugs and turned his life around and is raw and is open and it now runs an eight-figure business. So either of those guys, look them up. Tony Grebmeyer, also known as Tony G, and Stephen Kotler of the Flow Genome Project. Yeah, and Stephen Stephen Kotler just just wrote a book. Uh, well, not just. I think it was last year. Stealing wrote Fire. A book called, yeah, Stealing Fire, which for the listeners out there, uh, if you are into any type of hacking or if you're just wanting to, I mean – uh, you know what? I'm not even. I'm not even going to try and explain it or spoil it. Just go, just go pick up the book. I yeah. have not. I think I've recommended it to a person daily lately. It's an incredible, incredible book. So, um, Dov, thank you so much for your time. It was an incredible conversation. And uh, for all the listeners out there, I, I encourage you do write Dov. Check out his website. Uh, you feel free to to CC me in on that email. I would love to hear from you as well. Info at mantalks.com. And until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off. Join us for another inspiring conversation with another inspiring individual.